welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It's the most wonderful time of the year. A time to be with family, eat lots of food, and watch absurd Christmas movies starring Vanessa Hudgens because you love your wife. So I've heard. Plus, the Immigration Court Practice Manual was just amended again to allow for a 15-day call-up deadline in place of the 30-day call-up deadline put into place a year or two ago. Respondents' counsel everywhere rejoices. Case time. First, we have Juris v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on December 17, 2021. This is a 43-page decision about inadmissibility and applications for admission. Mr. Juris is a lawful permanent resident from Poland who, in 2007, returned to Poland to care for his ailing grandfather. U.S. immigration law can be harsh, though. Usually, green card holders are simply allowed to come and go as they please, so long as they don't do anything improper while they're outside the United States. But because Mr. Juris remained outside the U.S. for too long, immigration officials took the position when he tried to re-enter in 2013, in New York, that he had abandoned his green card. The immigration officials in 2013 in New York were a bit nicer than they were during the last administration's time in power, and instead of detaining Mr. Juris in an attempt to get him to give up the fight, immigration officials paroled him into the U.S. and placed him into removal proceedings for an immigration judge to determine whether he had abandoned his green card. But really, Mr. Juris is in trouble, because immigration law presumes abandonment when an LPR has been outside the U.S. for over a year, and here, Mr. Juris has been outside the U.S. for six. To prove that he always intended to return and that he never abandoned his green card during that time, he explained that he was only in Poland to care for his grandfather, who had Alzheimer's and dementia, and that he couldn't leave until his father retired and could then take the reins on the care in 2013. Mr. Juris didn't own any property in Poland or work there during this time, so that supports his non-abandonment. But he also didn't have any property in the U.S. during those six years, so that hurts him. 
The IJ ultimately ruled against Mr. Juris, finding that he had abandoned his LPR status. That made him a, quote, arriving alien, end quote, under immigration law, and made him inadmissible because he lacked a visa or other documents to enter the U.S. But immigration law always permits arriving aliens to withdraw their application for admission, and that includes many asylum seekers, by the way. You just have to ask before the IJ, or ICE for that matter, issues the removal order. While withdrawing an application for admission means that the non-citizen has to leave, it also completely avoids a final order of removal. And if the non-citizen has a path to return to the U.S. with a visa, it could be quite the benefit. Mr. Juris, through counsel, requested this after the IJ ruled against him on abandonment. DHS didn't oppose, and the IJ permitted Mr. Juris to withdraw his application for admission. Mr. Juris then appealed the inadmissibility abandonment issue to the BIA, asking in the alternative that the BIA also allow him to withdraw his application for admission if the BIA agrees with the IJ. The BIA did what the IJ did. Mr. Juris petitioned to the Second Circuit through new counsel and then, while the petition for review was pending, filed a motion to reopen with the BIA, claiming that he didn't know that asking to withdraw his application for admission meant that he was giving up his green card. The BIA denied that motion because, at a minimum, Mr. Juris hadn't alleged that his attorney at the time was ineffective. All of it got put together, baked, and ordered by the Second Circuit. And before the court, Oil conceded that the Second Circuit had jurisdiction, it appears, to review everything. So, the Second Circuit appointed a third attorney to argue as amicus that the court did not have jurisdiction. All right. After all the briefing, the Second Circuit first held that it did lack jurisdiction to review the IJ's decision to allow Mr. Juris to withdraw his application for admission. And that's because, to avoid the weeds and, at a minimum, INA Section 242A2B divests circuits of jurisdiction to review purely discretionary determinations. And that's what a decision to allow, or not allow, a non-citizen to withdraw his application for admission is. And the court held that the same logic applies to the motion to reopen, because, quote, the motion to reopen and the order allowing the withdrawal of Mr. Juris's application for admission are sufficiently connected, such that our review of the former would undermine Congress's decision to bar our review of the latter, end quote. Put another way, it would appear, if the underlying action requested by a motion to reopen is itself unreviewable on direct appeal, and a petitioner hasn't presented a sufficiently legal challenge, the Second Circuit believes itself divested of jurisdiction over the motion to reopen as well. If you're still with me on all this jurisdiction, strap in, because we're not done. The court then held that it retained jurisdiction to review whether the IJ properly found Mr. Juris removable, notwithstanding the fact that Mr. Juris technically withdrew the application for admission. Well, kind of. The court remained unclear what effect the withdrawal of the application for admission and the IJ's inadmissibility finding had. After all, Mr. Juris withdrew his application for admission. Does that mean that the IJ's inadmissibility finding is moot? That it never happened at all? For, logic dictates, an individual can't be found inadmissible if he's not applying for admission. All of this might sound a bit academic, but to the Second Circuit, it's central to whether it even has jurisdiction to review the inadmissibility issue, because circuits only have jurisdiction to review issues tethered to final orders of removal. The Second Circuit has found rare exceptions to this rule where, notwithstanding 
The fact that there might not technically be a final order, the inadmissibility finding will have a prejudicial future effect on the non-citizen. But the court is not sure that that's the case here. So, the Second Circuit remanded to the BIA, quote, for the limited purpose of providing its view of the status of the IJ's finding of inadmissibility and explaining whether the agency would be obliged to give its inadmissibility finding binding effect in future administrative immigration proceedings, or whether that finding is nothing more than dicta for future agency officials to follow or not, only as they might deem it persuasive, end quote. Technical remand, so congratulations Michael P. Theramondo, Mariliana L. Massey, and Stacey A. Huber for the technical win for Petitioner. Honestly, the wonkiest of wonky decisions. But thank you to the Second Circuit for coming through in the 11th hour this week with a technical win for non-citizens and avoiding a shutout. The rest, dear friends, are not so friendly. And that is Juris v. Garland. Next is Bonnet v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on December 13th, 2021. This case is about protection under the Convention Against Torture. Mr. Bonnet is from Haiti and entered the United States as a lawful permanent resident in 1999 at 16 years old. He did not naturalize and almost 20 years later was convicted of possession of certain drugs with the intent to distribute. Mr. Bonnet, likely detained, appeared without an attorney, conceded removability, and applied for asylum and related relief. An immigration judge denied, and the case went up and back to the BIA, mainly because one of the convictions was vacated on appeal. And on remand, Mr. Bonnet got an attorney, who again pursued asylum and related relief. This time, Mr. Bonnet submitted expert testimony. Nevertheless, after an individual hearing, the immigration judge again found Mr. Bonnet removable and denied asylum and related relief and protection. The BIA affirmed. Mr. Bonnet petitioned for review only of the denial of cat protection, meaning that while a green card is off the table, Mr. Bonnet need not show that a protected ground is one central reason, or indeed any reason, for the torture he fears. But the First Circuit affirmed the BIA. Now, as an initial matter, despite his convictions, the First Circuit can review the denial of cat protection. And that's because of the Supreme Court's Nasrallah v. Barr decision two terms ago, which, by the way, may also apply to withholding of removal under the INA. Strong arguments exist. Jurisdiction discussions for another day. But anyway, reviewing only the cat denial, the First Circuit believed the BIA and IJ's decisions correct. It appears that the crux of Mr. Bonnet's argument was that he would be subject to torture in Haiti, quote, while imprisoned there as a criminal deportee, end quote. But the BIA's 2002 decision in matter of J.E. is kind of directly on point in a bad way. But it's also 20 years old. Mr. Bonnet's attorneys argued that it was therefore error for the BIA to simply rely on matter of J.E. to deny the cat claims as it's old and therefore can't really discuss Haitian prison conditions as they exist today. And that may be, but the First Circuit affirmed the BIA for another reason. Mr. Bonnet didn't show that it was more likely than not that he'd be imprisoned in the first place if returned to Haiti. Matter of JFF strikes again. And in ruling against Mr. Bonnet on this point, the First Circuit got pretty into the weeds on the expert's testimony, relying on, for example, the fact that the expert said that the immigration officers in Haiti have discretion on whether or not to detain a criminal deportee with drug convictions. 
The expert did say that it was more likely for such an individual to be detained than for, say, another Haitian deportee, but didn't say, quote, more likely than not, end quote, as across all Haitian citizens, as the cat requires. Make sure your experts use the magic words. The First Circuit distinguished this case from other circuit decisions where Haitian deportees were indeed granted cat protection, due to the different facts of those cases and the different years that they were decided. The First Circuit also affirmed the BIA's finding that Mr. Bonnet did not warrant cat protection based on his fear of, quote, torture by vigilante mobs in Haiti, end quote. As the Haitian government wouldn't be the persecutor under such a scenario, Mr. Bonnet would need to show that the Haitian government consents or acquiesces to these Haitian vigilante mobs. And I don't know, at least today it seems that there's quite the argument that the government of Haiti acquiesces to gang violence. But I'm not sure Mr. Bonnet fears gangs, and in any event, the First Circuit held here that Mr. Bonnet had not sufficiently challenged the BIA's factual finding, and so upheld it. That is, Mr. Bonnet didn't sufficiently argue why the BIA was wrong in holding that he would not more likely than not be tortured on the basis of these vigilante mobs in Haiti. Mr. Bonnet, therefore, did not succeed. And so, while they were not successful, congratulations nonetheless to the Boston College Law students who litigated and argued the case on petition for review. And that is Bonnet v. Garland. Moving on, we have Singh v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on December 17, 2021. This is that Indian asylum case where the Fifth Circuit initially granted a stay of removal with some very powerful language on immigration judge bias, discussed on episode 64 of the podcast. The Fifth Circuit vacated the stay decision shortly thereafter, but never really said why. The merits of the IJ and BIA decision denying relief is now before the court. And a bit surprisingly, the Fifth Circuit has upheld the IJ and the BIA. This case is about stays of removal, credibility, and IJ bias. As discussed on episode 64, Mr. Singh claims he's a political dissident in Punjab, India, and a member of the Man Party, who was twice assaulted and beaten by members of the party in power, known as the BJP, with the involvement of police. He claimed that during the second attack, the BJP members said that they would kill him next time. He went to the hospital following both beatings, and since fleeing to the U.S., BJP members have allegedly threatened and attacked Mr. Singh's parents in search of him. At his detained removal hearing, the IJ stated that, quote, Since October 2019, when a wave of respondents from India have arrived, there has been an emerging pattern and an eerie similarity between the statements presented by the respondents in either credible fear proceedings or in their asylum applications, end quote. The IJ then went on to describe the claims and rejected counsel's explanations of why there was nothing impermissible going on. The IJ denied relief and protection based on an adverse credibility finding, and the BIA affirmed. Now recall, in its since-vacated decision on the stay, the Fifth Circuit had held that the IJ very, very likely failed to comply with the BIA's 2015 decision in matter of RKK, quote, applicable when an IJ relies on interproceeding similarities for an adverse credibility determination, end quote. Under RKK, if an IJ is going to rely on information not related to the case in front of him or her, the IJ should, quote, give the applicant meaningful notice of the similarities that are considered to be significant, end quote, 
a reasonable opportunity to explain the similarities, and then consider all the circumstances in totality on the record. And as the Fifth Circuit explained last time, that's probably going to require a continuance. In this case, the IJ did not provide Mr. Singh with copies of the statements and documents from the other allegedly similar asylum cases that the IJ was relying upon, or anything really. The IJ just paraphrased similarities that the IJ had been seeing in other cases. As such, it doesn't appear that Mr. Singh had a reasonable opportunity to contest the serious allegations. That being said in the Fifth Circuit, quote, even minor inconsistencies between an applicant's testimony and prior statements may form the basis of a negative credibility finding, end quote. Therefore, and even though the merits panel here held that, quote, the IJ's application of matter of RKK was questionable, end quote, as the IJ didn't give Mr. Singh, quote, meaningful notice or a reasonable chance to rebut, end quote, the extra record evidence that the IJ appeared to rely on, the IJ also based the adverse credibility finding on, among other things, a medical certificate that allegedly corroborated an attack with a date that actually postdates Mr. Singh's arrival into the United States. So that's not good. And it supports an adverse credibility finding independently, according to the court. Turning then to whether the whole thing was tainted by IJ bias, the Fifth Circuit held that even if true, quote, the IJ's purported facial expressions, lack of patience with counsel, and appearance of incredulity do not prove bias, end quote. Nor will the IJ's high asylum denial rate, relied upon so heavily by the stay panel, support a bias argument here, because, quote, a raw statistic, end quote, even a statistic showing a 100% denial rate of asylum claims over nine years, quote, cannot of itself show bias in a particular case, end quote. Not for nothing, though, the Fifth Circuit does state, relying on matter of examine from 1982, that high asylum rates combined with, quote, specific statements, end quote, that are made in a current or prior removal case may constitute grounds for a respondent to, quote, move to disqualify the IJ, end quote, if brought in the proceedings below. But Mr. Singh has now lost on the merits. Two more things to conclude Mr. Singh's saga. In July, before the Fifth Circuit vacated its stay decision, I anticipated that Mr. Singh was probably going to win on the merits, because at the time, the Fifth Circuit said that, quote, the incredibly high denial rate, when coupled with the IJ's noncompliance with matter of RKK, presents a substantial likelihood that Mr. Singh will be entitled to relief upon full consideration by a merits panel. End quote. Nothing else to say here, except that the panel has apparently changed its mind. Finally, for what it's worth for future IJ bias or similar extra record claim cases, remember, the Fifth Circuit has given us a high standard, but it's still a standard. Quote, if the IJ's credibility finding turned on nothing more than eerie similarities from nameless prior cases, Mr. Singh's due process claim might have purchase under matter of RKK. End quote and that is Singh v. Garland. Moving along, we have Garcia Ortiz v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on December 17, 2021. This case is about exceptional and extremely unusual hardship. And that's because Mr. Garcia Ortiz is from Mexico, entered the U.S. without authorization over 10 years ago, and when placed in removal proceedings, requested non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AB. 
Assuming that Mr. Garcia Ortiz is a good person, the relief would still require that he establish that a qualifying relative, LPR, or U.S. citizen, spouse, parent, or child would suffer exceptional and extremely unusual hardship should he be removed. An intentionally high standard created by Congress and passed into law in 1997 to remove more people. Candidly, sometimes, it's a bit of a stretch to meet the standard. But not so much here. Tragically, in 2018 and during the removal proceedings, Mr. Garcia Ortiz's U.S. citizen teenage daughter's depression led her to attempt suicide by ingesting a bunch of pills. Mr. Garcia Ortiz testified and presented evidence to show that his daughter needed her father in her life. Also, his son lost an eye after a paintball accident. Rough stuff. But, quote, The IJ disagreed finding that the daughter never lost consciousness during the suicide attempt, made no further attempts to harm herself, indicated that therapy helped, had not scheduled any follow-up therapy, and appeared to be doing well, end quote. The BIA affirmed, as did the Eighth Circuit. And candidly, it was always going to be an uphill battle on petition for review, because hardship findings are pretty difficult to get circuits to review under the statutory scheme created by Congress in, you guessed it, 1997. To get around the jurisdictional bar, Mr. Garcia Ortiz first argued a legal issue that, quote, by focusing solely on the daughter's current conditions, the BIA misapplied the standard for exceptional and extremely unusual hardship, end quote. And that is because, for example, in the seminal Ninth Circuit decision, Figueroa v. Mukasey, IJs must consider the hardship qualifying relatives will suffer whether they remain in the U.S. or accompany the non-citizen to the foreign country. The USCIS policy manual has this requirement as well for hardship findings, by the way. And that might be the standard in the Eighth Circuit, but here, Mr. Garcia Ortiz conceded that his, quote, children will remain in the United States with their mother if he is removed to Mexico, end quote. Due to that concession, therefore, said the Eighth Circuit, the IJ didn't need to analyze what would happen to the daughter in the future in Mexico. Extrapolating on that, the Eighth Circuit held that the IJ didn't err in simply focusing on the daughter's current psychological condition, because that condition indicated what would happen to her in the future in the United States should her father be removed and she remain in this country. As the BIA noted, the non-LPR cancellation of removal hardship standard is, quote, exceptional, end quote. As to whether the IJ and BIA erred in determining that the removal proceedings and possibility of her father's deportation had anything to do with the suicide attempt, the Eighth Circuit held that it was a discretionary factual challenge that the statute bars it from reviewing. The court also held that it lacked jurisdiction to review the IJ's clear error that the hardship wouldn't be so bad because Mr. Garcia Ortiz would have, quote, a distinct possibility, end quote, of returning to his family after a, quote, limited period of separation, end quote, in Mexico. That's clearly not true because with a removal order for someone like Mr. Garcia Ortiz, he'd be subject to two separate 10-year bars to even apply for a visa, much less actually then get that visa. But the BIA didn't rely on the IJ's clear error there, so it was not within the proper scope for the Eighth Circuit to review. Mr. Garcia Ortiz, therefore, will be removed. If you disagree with this decision or the analysis applied, check out the link in the show notes to the Political Action Committee Immigrants List, which advocates for legislative immigration reform to bring about much of the framework that existed pre-1997. And that is Garcia Ortiz v. Garland. 
That leaves only one more. Tomzak v. Garland, published by the Inbank Ninth Circuit on December 14, 2021. This case is about Canada and reinstatement, and has appeared on the podcast before, specifically, episode 41. Dave Matthews Band fans out there, anyone? The Ninth Circuit went in bonk on its panel decision and appears to have now adopted Judge Bybee's dissent from the first go-around. This decision goes against Mr. Tom Zick. Here's what's up. Mr. Tom Zick is from Canada and was excluded from the United States in 1990 when immigration court was still compartmentalized into exclusion and deportation proceedings. Exclusion proceedings covered non-citizens trying to enter the U.S. and contained many of the provisions currently reflected at INA Section 212. Deportation proceedings were for those individuals already in the U.S. and contained many of the provisions currently at Section 237. Mr. Tomzik was issued a final order of exclusion at the Canadian border for not having proper documents to enter the U.S. and due to a controlled substance conviction in Canada from 1971. Heads up everyone, that's a two-way street. DUI convictions in the U.S., for example, have been known to bar individuals from entering Canada. Anyway, upon his exclusion into Canada, former INS provided him with a warning that he'd be subject to criminal penalty if he attempted to re-enter the U.S. within a year. But in accordance with the law at the time in 1990, the warning didn't say anything about entries after that one year. Over a year later, in July 1991, Mr. Tomzik re-entered the U.S. without immigration documents. But he claimed in this case that he was in a car that was waved through by an immigration officer at the time. ICE learned about him again like two decades later, following a DUI arrest in 2016. And DHS decided to issue a document reinstating the 1990 order of exclusion, which DHS is allowed to do under INA Section 241A5 at its discretion if a non-citizen with a final order has entered the U.S. illegally. If the final order is reinstated, the non-citizen is pretty much summarily removed without a hearing. They can't apply for any relief except withholding of removal and protection under the Convention Against Torture, and so they can't, as Mr. Tomzik wanted to, apply for non-LPR cancellation of removal based on the hardship that his removal would cause to his severely disabled U.S. citizen spouse. And so, Mr. Tomzik did pretty much the last thing he could do. He contested the reinstatement order itself. Such a challenge skips the IJ and the BIA and goes straight to the circuit court, at least in the Ninth Circuit. Now on episode 41, the Ninth Circuit panel vacated the reinstatement order and remanded back to DHS, based on a finding that Mr. Tomsick did not enter the U.S. illegally in 1991, as that term is understood at INA section 241A5. Essentially, the Ninth Circuit panel held that a procedurally valid admission, like a wave-through, lacking any fraud or misconduct on the part of the non-citizen, is not an illegal re-entry that can serve as a predicate for the reinstatement of a final order of removal, exclusion, deportation, whatever. As I mentioned at the time, Judge Bybee dissented emphatically. And here, the Ninth Circuit and Bank panel appears to agree. Indeed, as we've discussed before, reinstatement only requires that DHS determine three things. The individual is a non-citizen, subject to a final order of removal, who illegally entered the U.S. And so this dispute here all comes down to that final element. Was it an illegal re-entry in 1991? The Ninth Circuit held that the INA doesn't define the term, so the court turned to dictionaries. 
According to the court, those definitions indicate that an entry is illegal when, quote, a non-citizen is forbidden by law from gaining admission into the country, end quote. The Ninth Circuit held that the definition was met here. Mr. Tomsick was not permitted to enter the U.S. under immigration law when he did so 25 years ago, following his final order of exclusion and the previous drug offense. That an immigration officer might have waved him through does not change that fact. A wave through is not a waiver of inadmissibility, said the court. And according to the court, this decision aligns with its prior precedent and holdings out of the Tenth and Seventh Circuits. Having determined that reinstatement was proper under the statute, the Ninth Circuit rejected Mr. Tomzik's three other arguments. Mr. Tomzik first argued that the government should be equitably stopped from reinstating the final order because the government purportedly told him at the time that he was only barred from re-entering the U.S. for one year. But that's not actually what the document said back then. Instead, the document said that he must wait a year to request permission to re-enter, and that if he didn't, he committed a crime. So the document doesn't help him much, and it certainly doesn't establish that the U.S. government engaged in, quote, affirmative misconduct going beyond mere negligence, end quote, as required if an individual is to have any chance of succeeding on an estoppel claim against the U.S. government. Second, Mr. Tomczyk argued that the reinstatement law, which came into effect in 1997, can't apply retroactively to him. Now, the Supreme Court has said that it can, but the Ninth Circuit said in the 2011 case, except the holder, that reinstatement doesn't, quote, apply retroactively to a non-citizen who applied for immigration relief prior to IRIRA's effective date, and thus had a vested right to the adjudication of that application on its merits, end quote. So I guess it doesn't apply to somebody who unlawfully re-entered the United States before 1997, was put in deportation proceedings, and was applying for relief at the time or after the reinstatement provision was put into law in 1997? Unsure, and I need to read the case. But regardless, the Ninth Circuit held that that exception didn't apply to Mr. Tomzik, who simply re-entered the United States before ERIRA. He didn't apply for any relief with any government agency at any time before the reinstatement law came into effect. Finally, the Ninth Circuit rejected Mr. Tomzik's argument that reinstatement violated his constitutional right to remain with his U.S. citizen family of nearly three decades. The court held that such arguments do not raise constitutional concerns. Nor, said the Ninth Circuit, could Mr. Tomzik now challenge that original 1990 exclusion order, as he had not shown that, quote, a gross miscarriage of justice occurred in his original exclusion proceedings, end quote. Mr. Tomzik's long journey, therefore, appears to be at an end and not in a good way. But here's some more to remember. Note, an immigration officer's wave-through is definitely not irrelevant. The genesis of Mr. Tomzik's argument is probably that matter of Kiantan and similar Ninth Circuit and other circuit cases hold that a wave through an entry at the border, even if illegal, will generally constitute an inspection and admission for adjustment of status purposes. That means, for example, that such a waived through individual can become a lawful permanent resident if they marry a U.S. citizen and can prove that the wave through happened. Mr. Tomzik is different because he had a final order of removal that was reinstated, and he's not trying to establish an inspection and admission. He's trying to show that the entry at the time was legal. The Ninth Circuit is not willing to extend Kiantan and its precedent that far. 
And speaking of what, like reinstatement, is dead may never die. The Ninth Circuit withdrew and reissued its pretty important adverse credibility decision in Alcaraz Enriquez v. Garland this week, discussed on episode 73 of the podcast, and after the Supreme Court's Die v. Garland decision, itself discussed on episode 69 of the podcast. But lest anyone fret, I have completed a side-by-side review of the two Alcaraz Enriquez's, Enrique, and cannot really see a difference. So check out episode 73 for the decision's analysis. And have a happy holidays, everyone, won't you? And that is Tomzik v. Garland, and Bonk Redux. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.